0: Am I on? Okay. Very good. Um, this Thanksgiving, <clears throat> we mentioned to you all several times, we had, we opened up our house, Michelle and I open up our house and have a bunch of people come over. Anybody who wants to come over, comes to our home, uh, the Holy Smoker, that's that's really what the Holy Smoker is all about is Thanksgiving, so I go all out with uh, brisket, smoked turkey, ham sausage, the whole shooting match, right? And everybody who did come over, I'm sure you got plenty to eat, right? Those of you who came over, Art, did you get enough to eat? Okay, that's what I thought. So, and then everybody brings sides and desserts and things. It was wonderful. So we had about 50, over 50 people showed up to the house that day, and it was, it was incredible. And as I was looking and talking around and, and seeing folks, I was just kind of, thinking to myself how diverse this group of people is. We had friends of ours from high school. We had people from Oak Hills, people from other churches. Just friends are, that we've known for a long time. People that come to our Bible study groups. Friends of friends we met. Um, it was just a really sweet time and it reminded me of Jesus' family tree. Just like every one of those people that came to our house on Thanksgiving has their own story, there are four people in the genealogy of Jesus that we find in Matthew 1, 3 through 6 that have very interesting stories. And most of them, in fact, all of them except the last one, we, we know we won't we have to piece it together. Uh, these are the women in Jesus genealogy. It's very odd when you think about it that you would see women in the genealogy of a king. They didn't mention women much back in that time. But in Jesus genealogy, and this is Matthew, right? This is the this is the gospel that was directed for the Hebrew people. We see four. Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and Bathsheba. Now, the verse reads like this, according to Matthew, and to Judah were born Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and to Perez was born Hezron, and to Hezron, Ram, and to Ram was born Amminadab; and to Aminadab, Nashon, and to Nashon, Salmon, and to Salmon was born Boaz by Rahab, and to Boaz was born Obed by Ruth and to Obed Jesse, and to Jesse was born David the king, and to David was born Solomon by her who had been the wife of Uriah. That last one is Bathsheba. Now These women show that Jesus' ancestors were regular people, just like you and me. They were struggling in their walks with God. Not all of them had a very in-depth knowledge of the Lord. In fact, as we'll see, there were a couple of them that had just the tiniest fragment, the, the merest inkling of who God was. And yet, they're in the genealogy of Christ. Their stories are quite different. In fact, three of them are pretty sorted, which is why we're not having... Children's church in here today. (laughs) Um, But when you view all four of them together, they wonderfully illustrate forgiveness, redemption, service, commitment, mercy, perseverance, and faith. In these four women, we do see the divine gift of Christmas faith. Hope, love. Now, the first woman, Tamar, she's found in one of the strangest passages of the Bible. It's Genesis chapter 38. If you're not familiar with it, I'll kind of lay out the story. When I was teaching the story of Joseph in retirement homes, back when I first entered ministry, and I didn't know anything. I skipped chapter 38, just went from 37 to 39, just took it right out because I didn't want to, I just couldn't understand it. I didn't understand why it was sitting there, this really sordid tale. Well, now I know, and I'm going to share it with you. So the story goes like this <clears throat> it's right in the middle of jo- the story of, of Joseph, right? The coat of many colors. His brothers hated him because he was the father's favorite. Well, uh, after the brothers had all gotten together, betrayed Joseph, and sold him to the slave traders, Judah takes off, and he leaves the family for a pagan land, and he marries a pagan woman. He had wandered away from the only faithful people he knew, you see. He went into the land where they didn't know God, didn't care to know God, and were not interested in knowing. God. His wife, Judah's wife, isn't even named in scripture. She's just called the daughter of a Canaanite man named Shua. Now, if you're not named in scripture, you're just called the daughter of a Canaanite, which would be, oh, I I'm trying to find, there's really not a good parallel today. Uh, if uh, well, maybe if you are a UT fan or you're a UT alum, it'd be like saying he's a daughter of an Aggie. Okay, you see what I'm saying? You don't like those people very much, right? Or an Oklahoma Sooner or something like that. So a Canaanite person to a Hebrew would be, Ew, you know, you know, don't want that. Now, but God doesn't name her in Scripture, and that's significant, meaning that she is not a believer. But he has three sons by this daughter of Shua Ur, Onan, and Shelah. Now, as part of what you're supposed to do as the head of the household, and Judah is, he's the head of his family, you're supposed to find wives for your male children so that they could beget children and you, the family line grows, you see. Uh, back then, children were viewed as, number one, a blessing from God. But two, even if you were more of a secular mindset, it's more hands to help around the farm or with the livestock or whatever business you've got. It's free labor the more kids you have, you see. So children were were valued much more possibly uh, back in the ancient days than they are today where most sometimes they are viewed as inconvenient. Uh, But Ur, however, so anyway, he he finds this woman for, for Ur, and he's probably viewing the wife for his son much like he viewed finding his own wife. She was pretty, and that's all that mattered. You know, if you're in a pagan land trying to find a wife for your son, get him a pretty one. So Ur, however, was a pretty wicked dude. Now, the Bible doesn't tell us exactly in what way Ur is wicked, but it was so bad, God ended his life. Okay? Uh, The custom of the time was for the next available son or the next available brother of the deceased person to marry the widow. And that the child that that new marriage would have would then be considered the child of of the firstborn, okay? So um, it is a way to make sure that no branch of the family line dies out through premature death, you see. But uh, this custom is actually going to be included into the Mosaic law later, that if, so, if you are married and the, the man dies then the widow is supposed to be married to the next available kin around there. And that does a couple of things. One, it is to make sure that the person who died's line doesn't die out. But it's also a way of providing for the woman, no? They, they don't have social service programs. There wasn't a whole lot of ways for women to support themselves if they didn't have a family network around them. So it is a charitable thing to do. Sounds kind of weird in our eyes that we would marry our, our brother's wife, but for back then, it was a way of, of protecting her, providing for the widow. So Onan does is the middle son, and he does take her, but he deliberately avoids impregnating her because the child that they would have together would legally be the son of his deceased older brother, meaning that child would become the heir. And the heir usually got two-thirds of everything that the father had. So the heir gets two-thirds and everybody else gets one-third, divvies up one-third, because the heir is the one who's going to carry on the family tradition and be kind of the pater familias, the head of the household. Well, Onan wants the two-thirds for himself, so he doesn't impregnate Tamar. He deliberately does not. Well, God knew what was going on. He judged that wicked and ended Onan's life too. Now at this point, Judah has lost two sons uh, and he's beginning to think that there's something fishy with this woman, Tamar. So he does not give Tamar to his third son, Shelah. He's probably thinking that she's unlucky for his boys. So he's going to send her back uh, to her father as a widow with the promise of waiting until Shelah grows up. And then you can marry Sheila. He's got no intention of keeping this promise. Now, widows had a hard time remarrying outside of the the scenario I just described. If the family isn't going to take care of her and keep her in the family, it's very difficult for them to marry someone else. Because the question is, why didn't their brother marry you? Why Why would you want me to marry you? You know, why didn't the family do, are you, there's something that must really be off about this woman for the family to cast her out or she's infertile, right? If she can't have children, she's not any good to me. A Very cavalier way of looking at things, very harsh. Widows and orphans were the poorest and uncared for members of society in ancient days they were marginalized. And the Bible tells us God has a special place in his heart for widows and orphans. He repeatedly instructs the Israelites to make special provision for these unfortunate people. They're supposed to go out of their way to show mercy to widows and orphans. But that's later in the Mosaic Law. Here, Judah doesn't want to provide for Tamar, as he should. So he's going to send her back to her father. And that means she faces a very doubtful future. What's going to happen to her once her father dies? Well, if the father has a son, then he's going to become the heir and he's going to take all the stuff and he doesn't want his widowed sister around. Right? She's just going to be some old spinster. He may provide for her a stipend put her way out in the pasture in the back 40 somewhere, out of sight, out of mind, but it's just not going to be a happy future. She's being treated unjustly. It's not her fault that her first two husbands were wicked jerks that God had to punish by death, and yet Judah somehow is taking it out on her, and that's not right. Later on in the story, Judah's wife dies. And then he's going to start to go on a road trip. He goes to a place called Timnah to see his employees. Um, and he goes with his friend from the pagan land, who's not a believer, named Hira. Um It's more like a, a spring break outing, going to Padre, something like that. You know, it, It's not really a grieving trip. He, he's going out for fun, I think. Because by now, Tamar knows Judah has lied. And she is an outcast. Judah, at this point in the story, is a liar. He's a self-serving man who has abandoned Tamar because she's inconvenient. Or she's potentially dangerous to his surviving son. She's just unlucky. But Tamar seeks justice in a very odd way. She knows where he's going. And what is he's going there for? So Tamar dresses up as a prostitute with a veil over her face. And she waits for Judah alongside the road. She knows her father-in-law pretty well. Judah sees her, doesn't recognize her with the veil on and whatever, however she's dressed. He doesn't recognize her as his daughter-in-law. But he strikes a bargain with her for her favors. And even when he's talking to her, he doesn't recognize her voice. Kind of tells you something about the level of their relationship. So he vows to give her a young goat for her favors. And she demands that he, has a, uh, that he, he gives her some sort of pledge that he will pay up. Right? Well, I don't see a goat anywhere. Well, no, no, no. I, I'll bring it tomorrow. Uh-huh. Well, what are you going to give me to make sure that you do that? Something much more valuable than a goat, sir. So Judah agrees to give over his family signet or seal, possibly a ring, you know, something that has the family crest on it. That is what you would use for signatures. You would press your ring into the wax and put it on the, the paper or the tablet as a sign, symbol, symbol of your uh, honesty, just like when we sign documents today we're signing We we agree to it. They would have some sort of signet or ring that would uh, testify that they're in agreement. So he gives up the signet. He gives up his cord, possibly like a belt. And sometimes those had a a family history of sorts inscribed on it so that you would know a little bit about the person wearing the belt and about the family history uh, and his staff that he was walking with. So three very personal items he gives to the prostitute, whom he doesn't know is his daughter-in-law, he gives to her as a pledge that he's going to bring the goat because a prostitute who didn't know Judah doesn't care about that stuff. It's not worth anything to her. She wants the goat because the goat's valuable. goat's worth money. So if the deal had been honored, she would have kept the stuff that wasn't valuable to her but very valuable to Judah to wait until he brought the goat, a goat that wasn't that valuable to him, but very valuable to her, you see. So Judah gives up his family lineage to satisfy his fleshly desire. But imagine how Tamar had to steal herself to allow the author of her misery into her bed. That could not have been easy. Um, and I don't want to trivialize it, but do but you remember the cartoons? I can't even remember the, the main character, but there were the, the, the woman in trouble was always Penelope Pitstop, and the bad guy was always Dick Dastardly. And Dick Dastardly had that, that hissing dog, Muttley. <laughs> you remember that? If Penelope Pitstop had to let Dick Dastardly... Uh, into her bag, and he was always trying to kidnap her and do weird stuff. And I think it was the the Canadian Mountie that was the the primary hero, always having to rescue Penelope Pizza. Oh, it was Dudley Do Okay, yeah, Dudley Do would have to come in and rescue her from Dick Dastardly. I'm sorry. Snidely Whiplash, that's another good uh, dick dastardly type character, the bad guy. But you imagine the damsel in distress having to let that guy into their bed. He has been the author of my misery, and I'm having to let him into my bed. She does, though. Now she leaves right after they consummated the deal, and she becomes pregnant by birth. This is where we see her faith. The Bible doesn't come right out and say it, so just stay stay with me. Follow me here. See if this makes sense to you. She had to have trusted God that he would allow her to get pregnant after this one encounter with Judah, her father-in-law. Dr. Tina Grubbs answered a question that I had posed to her the other day, like, Back in those days, before you had sonograms and chemical testing and all of this stuff, what's the likelihood that a woman is going to get pregnant with one random encounter with a guy in one day, just one, just one time? And she said it's only about 5%. Only about 5% chance that she's going to get pregnant. Now, remember, Tamar had not had children by either of her first two marriages, Right? She's, but she's hoping she's going to be pregnant by Judah after this one encounter to teach him a lesson, to show him the depth of his depravity, his sin, and his unrighteousness towards her. She's got to have had faith, y'all. There's nothing else that explains it. She had to have done this, having faith that God would give her a child by Judah so she could confront him with his own sin. We'll talk more about that. We'll come back to that in a little bit greater detail. But just for right now, just kind of hold with me on that. Now, Judah sends his friend later with the goat to pay her, but there's no prostitute there. So Judah decides just to abandon the personal items with the prostitute because he doesn't want to be ridiculed as a laughingstock for losing his family heritage to a hooker. He has no morality or faith so far in the story. Tamar, on the other hand, did the best she could in faith. She had faith that God would be merciful and give her the one thing that would assure her future a child by Judah. Judah had abandoned her through no fault of her own, and she sought justice. Her actions are sinful. And yet, she is seeking justice in faith. God can even use sin for his glory. But I do not recommend that you try that, okay? (laughs) Be very clear on that. The reason is Tamar didn't know any better. We do, we have our Bibles, we have our teachers. We have our pastors teaching us what sin is. She didn't. She didn't. Think about who she had to teach her about God. Remember, she didn't know anybody. She's from some pagan land. So who was supposed to teach her? Judah as head of the household. He didn't teach her anything. How about Ur? He was so wicked, God ended his life. And Onan, he wasn't much interested either in teaching this woman who had no understanding of the one true God, anything. But somehow she learned up, learned enough to call on him. I can't get out of this mess on my own, Lord. My family has abandoned me unjustly, and I need you. I don't know anything about it. This is my plan. Please give me a child by my despised father-in-law who's made my life a misery. So, later on, Judah learns of Tamar's pregnancy and that she's pregnant because she's turned prostitute or sexually immoral. Judah demands that she be brought to him so he could burn her alive. This is his self-righteous way of wanting to kill his daughter-in-law. He has appointed himself as Tamar's judge, jury, and executioner. He's not exhibiting any grace or mercy, only self-righteous anger in an expedient way to get rid of a thorn in his side. This is horrible behavior for a great-grandson of Abraham. But before she can be brought to Judah... Tamar sends the pledged things to Judah with the message, I am pregnant by the man to whom these belong. Whoa. Hold the presses. Judah immediately understands who's really at fault for this terrible situation. His sin was much greater than her sin. He had driven her to the sin of prostitution and incest. It was his own fault. Judas said, she is more righteous than I am because I wouldn't give her to Shelah, my son. Genesis 38, 26. What makes somebody righteous? Faith. Just as it did for Abraham. And he believed the Lord... And he, God, counted it to him, Abraham, as righteousness, Genesis 15, 6. See, once he realizes his own sin, Judah repents and changes his ways. And when you compare the two, the faith of the two, we've talked about Tamar. Let's talk about Judah's lack of faith. Instead of trusting God that the death of his first two children was justified, even though he didn't understand it, Instead of trusting God and he should have done what he should have what the uh, custom demanded, and kept Tamar in the family and married her to Shelah, he took matters in his own hands in a sinful way, abandoning her, casting her out like it's her fault that the first two boys were idiots and wicked. He hadn't taught, he, wouldn't, he had a, a third opportunity to teach that last son, Shelah. What right and wrong is, the duties of a good husband, to be trusting in God and honoring the Lord. These are lessons that Judah probably knew he just didn't care about. He didn't apply them. He certainly didn't live them out. So it wasn't important to him. But now, once he realizes his own sin, Judah's changing his ways. This is a turning point for Judah you want to go on and read the rest of the the Joseph story, starting in Genesis 39, going through Genesis 50, you'll see later that Judah has remarkably changed. He acts sacrificially, sacrificially and compassionately for both Joseph and his father. He's not acting like the jerk we read of in 38. He's changed. God had changed him because of this episode with Tamar. And sometimes that's what it takes. Sometimes we have to do something so horrific and be confronted with our own sin that we stop everything and say, I am in deep yogurt. I'm making these choices on my own. They're nothing but mess ups. And I need to get right with the Lord. That's what Judah did. This story is filled with lies, abuse, lust, self-righteous accusations, cruelty, and sin. But it's also a story of faith, forgiveness, mercy, and love. Those are all the things our Savior brings to us. The redemption and forgiveness are evidenced by the later history of the family. Tamar gives birth to twins, and the firstborn, Perez, fruitfully multiplies to become one of the premier sub-tribes of the tribe of Judah. What we know about Perez is very positive. He's named in the story of Ruth, chapter 4, verse 13, as an example of God's blessing of many children. And it is Perez, not Shelah, who is named as the first son of Judah in First Chronicles 4. That indicates the boy Born of an awful series of sins, became Judah's heir. Judah never again had relations with Tamar, but her son's prominence indicates Tamar too experienced repentance and reconciliation. Now you may be asking yourself, what in the world does Genesis 38 have to do with Christmas? Jesus came to seek and save the lost. Tamar had a tiny bit of faith that her liaison would result in pregnancy and a repentance on the part of Judah. She did what she could by faith in God who grants justice. Some people say that she had no faith because she acted so sinfully The men in the family failed to teach her. Her first husband, her second, and Judah, they should have known better, but they were evil, wicked men acting evilly. Tamar was ignorant of God's stance on sexual morality, but she did the best she could in faith, trusting that God would deliver her justice. And once we see the family kind of reconciling, after Judah recognizes that it's really his fault, all of this has happened, we see God's love at work. This story in no way endorses sin, but it does show how merciful God is to faithless, sinful people. And isn't that what Jesus came to do? To forgive us? to change us, to reconcile us with God so that we become new, almost as if we were born again, right? To live a new life with God as the focus, with Christ's love in our heart so that our words and our actions become a delight to the Lord and beneficial to others. This story displays the primary theme of Christmas, love. Not Tamar's love, certainly not Judah's love, God's love. God's love for broken, sinful people like Judah and Tamar and you and me. The people, the very people, Jesus came to save people just like us. I always struggle with this chapter, Genesis 38, because it does stick out like a sore thumb in the whole long narrative of Joseph and his family. But when viewed as a story of redemption from some of the most despicable acts humans can inflict upon one another, it is a part of the Christmas story. The birth of, of Christ shows just how much God loves sinful, broken people. He's offered us his love, peace, and joy. People like Tamar and Judah are redeemed by God's grace alone. Redeemed people, like us, are included in the family of God forever like Judah and Tamar, we can say, I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. The next woman is Rahab. And her story shows how God blesses imperfect and baby faith. The story is found in the book of Joshua. And Joshua is, Moses has just died. Joshua is leading the Hebrew people into the promised land to conquer them, to get rid of all of the bad people. And they're all wicked. God has already declared blanket judgment on them all. Israel's supposed to go in there and wipe them out. And then inhabit the land. This is going to be their land flowing with milk and honey. So the first step was crossing the Jordan. They did that. God piled up the waters in the Jordan, and the people walked across on dry land. And Joshua sends spies into Jericho to find out what's going on. The spies go into the house of a harlot named Rahab. If you think about it, places of ill repute like that would be like going into a saloon or a bar. You would you'd kind of pick up the scuttlebutt, the gossip what's going on, who's doing what. Now, Rahab was a common and poor prostitute. Uh, Her house was in the wall. That's cheap, exposed lodging. That's not where the elites live. Like if she was a cultic prostitute for some false deity within the city, she might be respected and have more money and have a better place to live. But she's living within the wall which is probably not very comfortable and certainly cheap. So she's not, um, well, she's just not a, a priestess. She's a common prostitute. So with great courage, she makes a deal with the spies to save her family by betraying her own people. She knows that Jericho cannot defeat God, And after recounting some of the Lord's works, she shows that she believes that Yahweh is the true God whom no human can oppose. She says to them, and when we heard it, our hearts melted and no courage remained in any man any longer because of you for the Lord, your God, he is God in heaven and on earth beneath. Now, therefore, please swear to me by the Lord since I have dealt kindly with you that you also will deal kindly with my father's household and give me a pledge of truth and spare my father and my mother and my brothers and my sisters with all who belong to them and deliver our lives from death. That's Joshua 2, 11 through 13. Rahab didn't know the Mosaic law, but she recognized God in faith and committed to being on his side. So when the soldiers come to Rahab's house looking for the spies, she has them hidden on the roof, hidden amongst some grain, and she lies to the guards. No, no, I haven't seen them here. They, I think they, they, they were here for a little while, but they went that away. <laughs> you remember the three stooges, him go that away. That's what they're, she's saying. And the guards believe her, and they go. So she has protected the spies. But she lied to the soldiers. And yes, lies are sin. Her motivation was correct. She had this tiny mustard seed of faith in the God of Israel. She was a pagan. She didn't have a clear idea of God's standard of morality. She never heard the Mosaic law. She's never heard Moses or anybody preach about God. All she has heard is two events. One, he parted the Red Sea and Israel passed through on dry land. And two, right before they got to uh, Canaan, God delivered the kingdoms of uh, Sihon and Og to them. Two relatively mighty kingdoms just collapsed because God is on their side. She's scared. That's the only thing she has to, to knows about God is that God has this. God is with them. He's a real God, and I'm not going to stand against him. I want to be on his side. I'm committing everything I have to this deity. See, her sin of a lie wasn't a deliberate rebellion against God. She just believed in God, and she came to him in the only way she knew how. She tried to prove herself that she was on God's side in the coming fight. Her faithful words to the spies reveals she's totally committed to the Lord. What she has just done is an act of treason. It is a certain death penalty if she's ever caught. So she has staked everything that God would save her and her family. In poker terms, she has gone all in. This lie could cost her and her family everything if the authorities find out about it. So why did she do it? Because if the Israelite God is real, he's going to protect me from any repercussions. I'm on his side. And when I'm on his side, I'm going to win. And God's going to deliver me from whatever else is out there. We sin every day. But we are part of God's family by his grace and our faith. Like the story of Tamar, this isn't a license to go out and lie and sin, but it teaches that God honors our total commitment to him. Rahab is a flawed, sinful woman. She has had no training, no teaching about God, but she has great faith, great faith. She's risking not just her life, but the lives of all the people she loves and holds dear to side with the invaders. She came to God in a very human and courageous way. She commits to God, but she does so as a traitor to her nation. She trusted God is going to spare her and her family. She did the only thing she knew how to do, lie. Her courageous faith brings her into the family of God's people. And she has a son Boaz, an important person in the story of the next woman in Jesus' lineage, Ruth. Ruth has a whole book named after her, and she demonstrates the kind of love and faith Christians should have in serving one another. The story is that a Hebrew family, the father named Elimelech, the mother was Naomi, the sons Malon and Kilion, abandoned the land God had given them during a famine to live in the pagan country of Moab, somewhere to the east. The two sons marry Moabite women, Ruth and Orpah. Not Oprah, Orpah. The father, Elimelech, and the two sons, Malon and Keleon, my mentor called them Puni and piney. I don't know if that's really what those Hebrew names mean, but Puni and piney and Elimelech all die, all the men die. So the mother, Naomi, is stricken with grief and is now a widow in a strange land with nobody to provide for her or protect her. And she's going to remain grief-stricken throughout most of the book. Naomi decides to return to her hometown of Bethlehem. She releases her daughters-in-law to find husbands among her own, their own people. Orpah cries and leaves Naomi. Ruth cries but stays. And in some of the most powerful words of faith and loyalty affirms her love for God and Naomi. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or turn back from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. Thus may the Lord do to me and worse and worse. If anything but death separates you and me. Are there any stronger words of dedicated service, loyalty, and love? Ruth has chosen to be a young widow caretaker of an older widow when she could have abandoned Naomi to find a husband, an easier life by far. Why did she choose to stay with grief-stricken Naomi? She had faith and she had the great courage that comes from faith. Perhaps it was a tiny seat of faith like Tamar and Rahab, but it was placed rightly in the Lord. Like Tamar and Rahab, her faith was a total commitment of her life to serving God through serving Naomi. But through her courageous and sacrificial service of love, Ruth became well-known in Bethlehem. And she eventually becomes the wife of this good, pious man named Boaz. They have a son named Obed, who is the grandfather of David the king. And the birth of Obed restores Naomi's joy. And the people of Bethlehem Wish Boaz the joy and prosperity of Perez, remember him, for his upcoming marriage. So the story of Ruth demonstrates the kind of faithful loyalty and sacrificial love we strive to have. It is a story of faith. The widow women traveling alone in a time of lawlessness shows the great protection of God. They trust God to get them home safely, and God delivers. They had no other option. They couldn't call an Uber driver, take a train, fly, take a bus. They had to walk. It's a story of humility. Ruth serves as a field hand to pick up the leftovers from the harvest to feed both her and Naomi. Naomi is kind of sitting at home moping, not really doing a whole lot. And yet, Ruth has a good attitude about it all. It's a story of loyalty. It is her quiet, humble, faithful, hard work that Boaz and the entire community notice, not her beauty. And it's Ruth's hearts and actions that testify to her faith, humility, loyalty, and of course, her love. This is the kind of heart that God loves. Somebody willing to serve others. And by God's grace, as we journey in faith, we become more like Ruth, become more like Christ as we serve one another. Finally, we see the mother of Solomon, Bathsheba. The story is King David was a man after God's own heart. But in 2 Samuel chapter 11, we read of his great sin, with Bathsheba. It was a time when kings go out to war, but David stays at home on his, at the capital instead of leading the troops like he should have. He's taking a stroll on the roof of his palace when he sees a woman on her, top of her roof bathing and she's naked. He lusted after her and he seduced and or coerced her into adultery. Later he conspires to have her husband Uriah killed And then he covers up the murder to marry Bathsheba. But God knew, and God sent the prophet Nathan to confront David. David immediately repented. I'm sorry, you're right, Lord, I have sinned horribly. And though their first child dies, David and Bathsheba's child, first child dies, As a consequence of the sin, their second son became the king who built the Lord's temple, Solomon. God turned a series of horrible sins into a blessing for the nation. But who was Bathsheba other than a beautiful woman? Well, out of all of these women, she was the only one who was born a Hebrew. She was the daughter of Eliam and the granddaughter of Ahithophel. She knew God, her grandfather was a prophet and yet she is part of the story of David's sin and possibly her own. She was a loyal mother to Solomon and held David to his promise to make Solomon his heir at David's deathbed as rivals are struggling for the throne against Solomon and Bathsheba. She said, and as for you now, my Lord, the king, the eyes of all Israel are on you to tell them who shall sit on the throne of my Lord, the King after him. Otherwise it will come about as soon as my Lord, the King sleeps with his fathers, that I and my son Solomon will be considered offenders. Note the respect and humility of her words. Her petition is that of a loyal wife and protective mother. Had she been a willing participant in that first encounter she too had repented and now tried to be a good, faithful supporter of David. Had she been coerced into that first encounter, she had clearly forgiven David because she remained loyal to him and gave him wise counsel and Solomon. Solomon was loyal to his father and God as a young man, which might not have been the case if Bathsheba bore a grudge against God. We know David was not a very good father from the actions of his adult children. Solomon's youthful faithfulness might very well have been the impact of Bathsheba on his education and training. David's other children did not exhibit the faith of Solomon. Bathsheba then was a woman delivered from an awful situation. She raised a good son. Solomon started out that way, but he strayed a lot later in his life. But he started out good. And he became a great king, and it seems she was at peace with God. The lesson here is clear. All sin is awful, but all sin is also forgiven when we repent honestly and humbly before the Lord. Bathsheba shows a great deal of forgiveness. Whether she joined David willingly or through compulsion, forgiveness is key to the story. If she was willing, God forgave her sin through her genuine repentance. If she had been coerced, she had forgiven David completely, shown by her humble and loyal words of love. Whether or not Bathsheba sinned in the first encounter with David, she is part of the story of David's sin, repentance, and forgiveness. And if she did not sin, her forgiveness of the king is a powerful testimony to the love of Christ. Jesus said, But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you in Matthew 5.44. If David forced himself upon her, Bathsheba forgave her attacker and gave him another son who would be David's heir. Even as faithful believers, we still sin, sometimes with terrible results, but we repent. And through God's merciful grace, he restores us to relationship with him. So the lessons for today. Like Tamar, we cling to the faith God declares righteous. Through penitent faith, God forgives our sins and restores our relationship with him. Not because we earn his mercy, but because he loves us and pours out his grace, his unmerited favor upon us. Like Rahab, we don't always act correctly, but we commit ourselves to the Lord staking everything on his love, mercy, and grace. Total commitment is what he requires, and he grants us peace. Like Ruth, we serve God by serving others, sacrificing everything for him and the mission of the church, to love God and to love people, sharing the gospel and walking with people in the Lord. Like Bathsheba, we still sin or we get caught up in sin, but God forgives us and we should forgive those who wrong us. We have been saved and we are growing to become holy, to love God above all else and our neighbors as ourselves, as Jesus taught, and we are forgiven for the sins we commit on our way through the gift of Jesus Christ. He is Christmas. And He is the center of these four stories. His sacrificial love atones for sins and makes a right relationship with God possible. He saves, honors, and blesses people who are totally committed to Him. And we serve God's great mercy when we serve others, honoring our Savior with gifts more precious than gold. Frankincense or myrrh. And as God has forgiven us so much, we should always be humbly grateful for his mercy and extend forgiveness to others who wrong us. These four stories show how great is God's love for us. The great Christmas story that begins with angels and a birth in the manger will reach its climax in the suffering and death of the cross to atone for our sins. And God's gift to us on that first Christmas is the promise that he loves us. He saves us. And he will never, ever leave us. We are part of Jesus' family too. The Lord will always love you no matter what. And that's the Christmas story. Today, we're going to celebrate communion. While our deacons get things ready, let me just pray briefly as they begin to get things ready. Lord, thank you for reaching us with, uh, and teaching us that your mercies do not cease when we make mistakes. Strengthen our, faces, our faith so that our choice, choices delight you and help us to totally commit ourselves to you. Help us to serve with joy. Help us to forgive. Help us to be more like Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. So, we're going to celebrate communion, this great story of Christ, what he does for us. As the elements make their way, y'all can come down. (laughs) As the elements make their way, pause to consider a little bit about what it means as we uh, partake of the sacrament. Father, we come to you in a time of communion to remember what you did for us and to anticipate the promise of hope